0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a unique perspective on the events shaping your world. Fifteen years ago today, a little website called Facemash, where Harvard students compared their classmates' looks, changed its name to The Facebook. Since then, it's dropped the, and become a powerful force in our lives and our politics. But is it a force for good? Not so long ago, Mehdi Yarehi was a darling of Iran's rulers. But the pop star seems to have taken a sharp turn, denouncing the conditions in his home province. The regime's reaction to the tuneful dissident has been unexpectedly muted, so far. But first... After a volatile two weeks in Venezuela, demonstrations against the president erupted once more this weekend. But Nicolás Maduro gave a defiant speech at a rally insisting he would remain in power. That's despite the fact that he's no longer recognized as president by America and a number of other countries.
1: Well, we've had Yet again, millions of people out on the streets in Venezuela protesting against the illegitimate rule of Nicolas Maduro. Robert Guest is the Economist's foreign editor. We've had uh, Americans saying that they are packaging up large quantities of aid to ship to the country, uh, partly to see whether the, the regime stops that aid that people desperately need from getting in. Uh, and we just passed a deadline for uh, where European powers have said that they will take action if the regime does not call uh, elections. Um, That deadline has passed. We're expecting to see uh, France, Austria, possibly Britain formally recognize Juan Guaido, the uh, leader of the National Assembly, as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. And so what's Mr. Guaido been doing? Juan Guaido is moving around freely, mingling with crowds. He's clearly hugely popular. We know from polls that 80% of Venezuelans want to get rid of the regime that's wrecked the country. Um, Nicolas Maduro could not possibly go out and mingle with crowds. But what he can do is identify key uh, opposition supporters um, and have them pulled out of their houses in the middle of the night and tortured and possibly killed. So what happens now? Well, pressure is ratcheting up. The regime uh, is desperate for cash. The oil sanctions that the Americans have announced mean that uh, sales of uh, Venezuelan oil to the United States, uh, the money will be set aside for the legitimate government rather than from the election-rigging Maduro government. That means that they're desperate to find other ways of getting cash, either selling oil at a discount to um, embargo busters or they're also trying to sell off the uh, uh, the gold, or possibly selling future oil revenues to people who believe that they might someday pay it. Um, they're getting desperate here.
0: How significant is is what we've seen over the weekend, what we expect this week?
1: It's hugely significant. This is a regime that could fall at any moment, or it could somehow manage to dig in and kill enough people to remain in charge for a long time.
0: That That's the way it would stay in power, just through killing more people? I mean, what other options does Mr. Maduro have?
1: So, the regime is running out of cash. Uh, the oil sanctions are, are biting already. Uh, They're definitely hoping for a lifeline from Russia, although that's very unpopular domestically in Russia. There's a feeling that the the Russian government has thrown billions of dollars down a rat hole and they're not going to get it back again. Um, There's the possibility of physical protection from Russian mercenaries. You've got the Cubans uh, who who do spying on the Venezuelan people on behalf of the Venezuelan regime to try to root out disloyalty in the army. Uh, All those things may make him think that there's a possibility he can stay in charge. Against that, you've got the fact that Most of Latin America no longer recognizes him as the legitimate president because he's not because he rigged an election to get there. Uh, Most of the outside world's democracies um, look very, very uh, askance at him. And um, you've got millions of people out on the street and virtually nobody approves of the appalling record that he has. So he may realize at some point and more importantly, the people around him may realize that his time's up. Well, I, that's
0: the point. The, the suggestion has always been that uh, as long as the military is on his side, then, then things will stay more or less as they are. What's the calculus for them? What, what will push them over the line?
1: Well, the starting point is we've got to assume he's not popular with the military. Uh, it's impossible to know for sure, but the uh, Air Force General who defected recently said 90% of the military is against him. However, open displays of disloyalty are incredibly dangerous and the inner circle have profited handsomely and become very rich from being part of the Maduro circle and being allowed to loot the economy. So at some point, they may calculate that their survival, that they're not going to prison, that they're being able to maybe keep hold of some of the money that they've stolen and stashed offshore uh, is more likely if they sacrifice Maduro. Once they reach that point, then he's gone.
0: And the calculation for Mr. Maduro himself?
1: For Mr. Maduro himself, it's a pretty tough situation. He wants to remain in power. He doesn't want to end up uh, getting overthrown and killed like uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who is, you know, that's an image that sticks in dictators' minds very firmly. Um, If it's time for him to go, he'll probably be the last one to know.
0: Robert, thank you very
1: much. Thank you.
0: Teenage years are often the most difficult. For the world's largest social media platform, adolescence is proving a particular challenge. Today is Facebook's 15th birthday. It was launched in a college dorm, and within five years it had conquered America.
2: Facebook announcing today that it's crossed the 300 million user mark. That's compared to the approximately 307 million people in America.
0: Facebook then turned its attention to the rest of the world. It's become a juggernaut, buying up those companies that pose a threat.
2: Facebook is making its biggest acquisition ever, spending a billion dollars to buy Instagram. Facebook striking a deal to buy the messaging service WhatsApp for $16 billion in cash and stock.
0: It now claims more than two billion monthly users. But last year, the company stumbled. A series of scandals about the misuse of private data and Facebook's influence on politics damaged its reputation. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's enigmatic founder, spent five hours before Congress defending his company's practices. It's been a dark turn for Facebook, whose message has been that it's a force for good connecting the world.
2: I met Mark for a cover story that The Economist did on Facebook three years ago when things were going quite well. press was very positive about him. There were rumors that Zuckerberg might run for president.
0: Alexander Sewage bass is our senior correspondent for politics, technology and society.
2: Obviously the mood has completely turned and I think his performance in Congress last year left a lot of questions about his authenticity and integrity in answering questions clearly. Uh, Senator, we have a lot of competitors. Well, who's your biggest? Mm, I think The categories of, do do you want just one? I'm not sure I can give one, but can I give a a, a bunch? Mm -hmm. So there are three categories that I would focus on. One are the other tech platforms, so Google. I think that most people evaluating his performance in the last 18 months have been rightly quite disappointed in him. I think he had the opportunity to address a corporate crisis very quickly and with complete focus. And instead, I think that Mark and his inner team of advisors just hoped that it would blow over, and of course it didn't. It's gotten completely out of control.
0: Alexandra, birthdays can be a time to take stock. How big an influence has Facebook had on our lives over its 15 years?
2: Few companies in the history of the world have changed as many people's lives and touched as many people as Facebook has. First, it's changed the experience of what it means and feels like to be young. It's changed our conceptions of privacy. And it's changed civic engagement and politics in America and around the world. Some would say not necessarily for the better.
0: Well, let's take each of those in turn. How has it changed the experience of being young? How is being a teenager different now that Facebook is in the world?
2: I think that there's two big impacts if I look at teen culture today. The first is that it's given rise to what I'd call a me economy, where young people are the stars, they post content about themselves and show themselves to be... Often much happier and more glamorous than they actually are. Another way that Facebook has changed youth culture is it's completely altered how people interact with each other. Uh, and teens no longer prefer in-person communication.
0: Um, so we, we have a me economy built of uh, people who imagine everybody else is happier and everybody wants to just stay on Facebook rather than get together. How has Facebook uh, changed the, the sort of the sphere of privacy?
2: Radically, I would say. And it's interesting because I think Facebook was responsible at first for lowering barriers. It was the first website that people really felt comfortable sharing personal information freely online. I mean, that's because they felt like there were controls and it was just going to friends. So they would post their mobile phone number, their relationship status, their political views. We've recently seen a change where Facebook, I think, is leading the way and pulling people in. Reverse And so now people, I think, are much more cautious about privacy because of scandals last year around data sharing and Facebook.
0: When you discovered the
3: Cambridge Analytica that had fraudulently obtained all of this information,
2: why didn't you inform those 87 million? When we learned in 2015 that Cambridge Analytica had bought data from an app developer on Facebook that people had shared it with, Uh, we did take action.
0: Seems to me that the more urgent conversation that's going on and will be going on um, is that third part, the effect of Facebook on politics. Do you think it's a threat to democracy?
2: Facebook has both a positive and a negative when it comes to democracy. The first is, on the positive side, it can help with civic engagement. People can get information about activist groups, voting, registration that perhaps they wouldn't have gotten before. The negative side is also becoming extremely clear, which is that misinformation can spread very quickly. People can be manipulated. It's really hard to come down on one side or the other, but I think 2016, 2017, and 2018— have really laid bare the threats that Facebook poses. From now on, Facebook will do more to keep you safe and protect your privacy so we can all get back to what made Facebook good in the first place, friends.
0: I mean, we, we talk about these as uh, as problems that clearly need addressing, but what about sort of on the consumer end? How much do people seem to care about these issues, about the changes to privacy, about the uh, sort of uh, messing around at the margins of democracy or Are people really worried about their data, or are they kind of just incensed by the news about what's happened with their data?
2: I think people are concerned about their data, and I think that Ultimately, they find Facebook a less hospitable, enjoyable place to spend time. So not only is this an issue for people, but it's an issue for Facebook because people are less inclined to spend as much time as they had spent before in a place where misinformation spreads and they're getting very vocal content. And we see it in Facebook's engagement numbers with people spending significantly less time on Facebook in recent months than they had two years earlier.
0: Suppose all of this does bring down Facebook. Could something take its place? Could, could it be taken over? I mean, what we remember from the earliest days of social networking, if you remember them at all, actually, Friendster, MySpace is still around. They looked, you know, like, like lots of early internet behemoths, kind of immovable, and then they were essentially made completely irrelevant. Can that happen to Facebook?
2: Both Friendster and MySpace died pretty dramatic deaths, but it actually takes a long time to kill an internet company, especially an internet company that has strong network effects. And so Yahoo's demise was probably a decade in the making. Uh, And I'm not predicting anything dramatic like that for Facebook. I think that it is a company that will still be around, but that might be less lucrative and have less loyalty than people had rightly guessed it would a few years ago. And so it's not necessarily that anything is going to directly take its place uh, or that people are going to spend time on other social networks. Uh, I think it's more likely that people will just spend a little bit less time. uh, This is maybe the optimist in me, but maybe they'll go outside, read a book, do something else. But any time that people aren't spending on Facebook is bad news for the future of the firm in their eyes.
3: The song is a a protest against the war that marked Iran for eight years, the war with with
0: Iraq. Nicholas Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. He's been writing about a new song called Pare Sang. That means Broken Stone, and it's by Iranian singer Mehdi Yarahi.
3: In, In this video, he shows missiles falling on families. He shows families queuing at taps because the land has been parched, the rivers have been diverted, there are children being sent into... Minefields by generals, houses are are, are collapsing as soon as the ribbon is cut because they're so poorly built. It's really an
0: indictment of the Iranian regime. But it's an odd direction for Mr Yarrahi to take. He used to be pretty beloved of the regime. He sings beautiful renditions of the call to prayer. In 2017, he won the Best Album Prize from the Ministry of Islamic Guidance and Culture, That is hard to imagine now.
3: He sings dressed as a general. Clearly he's trying to be an Iranian general, but he has a swastika on his arm. And there's a particularly dramatic lyric in which he says, another generation went to war and did not return. I'm the last one of this tribe, a tribe with no food or water.
0: So why the change? If he was a regime favorite, why is he now this provocateur?
3: A lot of it has to do with his origin. He's from uh, the province of Khuzestan, which used to be called Arabistan. It's a mainly Arab province on the Gulf bordering Iraq. But it's a province which has been devastated by the war, by a sense of neglect. He is somebody who seems to have an increasingly conscious sense of his own Arab identity. This comes at a time where Iran is under enormous economic stress and there's a, a real struggle for resources and the periphery, which tends to be mainly non-Persian and ethnic, feels that it's losing out to the Persian core of Iran. Mehdi Yarrahi himself said, uh, when asked to defend his song, uh, he said it's a duty of artists to convey the voice of the people to the authorities. So in Khazistan itself, the people are, are pretty big fans of, of this work. His images of him are being put up in shops.
0: and has the the reaction been similarly favorable throughout iran or just in his sort of home region uh, if he's seen as a hero in
3: his own province elsewhere particularly on the part of hardliners within the regime he's seen as something of a of a traitor he's betraying the martyrs of of the revolution they see him as a sort of stooge for arabs somebody called him a singer for saddam hussein and he's seen as a the troublemaker which is particularly worrying for the authorities because it comes at a time when they're just on the eve of celebrating their 40th anniversary of the 1979 revolution.
0: So what are the authorities doing about it if, or, or what do you think they will do?
3: There were a, a lot of contradictory reports at the time as to whether he had been banned or, or not. It does appear that he was summoned by the Ministry of Islamic Guidance and according to a, an official from that ministry, it was said that he he repented and this was denied by Mehdi Yarah he, he said that he uh, wouldn't repent, that he stood for what he had said in his, his song. He did try and say that it was more general and not specifically aimed at the authorities, but I think it's very clear to most Iranians that this is really... Mehdi Yarahi representing Khuzestan against Tehran, against the center, and asking for some redress.
0: Right. So the the Ministry of Guidance having said that we called him on this and he repented is just needing to be seen to have at least wagged a finger at him. Is that the idea?
3: It is quite striking at the moment how the authorities seem to be doing their utmost not to inflame sentiment within Iran. They're very conscious that a year ago there were mass protests across the country, particularly in these provinces which are on the periphery with a concentration of non-Persian minorities. And so they do seem to be playing it down.
0: Nicholas, thank you very much. Jason, thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. Six issues for six dollars or six pounds. See you back here tomorrow.